This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Today we are focusing on food, especially food waste at both the industrial and the personal levels. The current context is record food inflation, 11.4%. And it's affecting most everyone, but especially lower and fixed income families who struggle to put food on the table. Now, most food waste happens during manufacturing and processing, and it's been calculated to add up to nearly five tons worth about $21 billion. Now at home, on average, per family, we waste 140 kilos of food each year, and that's worth 1300 bucks. That's a lot of money. And it's mostly perishables like fruit and vegetables, but All kinds of food is wasted, and it's also bad for the environment. So this year, cutting food waste is at the top of some people's New Year's resolutions. We'll talk about that. What about you? Are you doing anything to combat food waste, changing the way you organize food or whatever? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740. Toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. And now let's go to Lori Nichols, CEO of Second Harvest, Brody Slacer, Vice President of Operations at Flash Food, which is an app that sells food close to its best before date at deep discounts. And Rose Reisman, a caterer and cookbook author. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Thanks for joining us. Great. Happy New Year. Hello. Hello. Let us begin with Lori Nickel and uh, your charity rescues food and uh, you look at the macro level, at the the level of, of production where most of it gets wasted. Yes, well, at Second Harvest, we are Canada's largest food rescue organization, but we are, we do the research to really identify and understand where food loss is happening across the supply chain, how much and how often and where, and that's where we uh, learn that 58% of all the food produced for Canadians is getting lost or wasted, and much further up the supply chain than most people think. Uh-huh. I and know. We, we redirect that to great charities and nonprofits across the country. Okay. And um, in in your opinion, now you have uh, a couple of pretty scary statistics. One is that for every grocery store, there are four food charities, and that only... Four percent of of food that uh, is going to be wasted gets rescued. Why why is uh, that such a small number? Well, because there's just so much opportunity. So if ninety six percent of all this fifty eight percent of food, these billions of dollars worth of food, could be diverted to a uh, human being, which is its intended purpose, not only is it benefiting people, it's also staying out of landfill. And I think that's where the biggest challenge is when food ends up in landfill. It creates methane gas. It is a direct and significant contributor to the climate crisis. So it, it's a really simple solution of like, let's keep that away from from landfills and just get it to charities and nonprofits. Okay, but again, before we move on to the others, why is that number so low? Well, um, I think there has to be some more investigation uh, at, at the industry level, but I, I think it's really simple. We don't mandate measurement or make business have targets to hit. And as soon as we do that at the federal level, and we um, there's an SDG goal that we are going to cut our food loss and waste by half by 2030, but we are doing nothing about that right now. As soon as we do, then that number will skyrocket and pretty quickly because businesses will innovate and they will be forced to do that. So providing tax incentives to get them to do that, but just mandating that they measure, monitor, and hit some targets, that alone will change the amount of food that's being donated. 
Okay, Brody Slicer, uh, you are the VP of Operations at Flash Food, which is one of a growing number of food recovery apps. And uh, that's where you go on an app and you can find some food that is close to its whatever, sell by, best before, whatever uh, that might be going into a landfill and buy it at a deep discount. So how's business? Yeah, thanks, Libby. Thanks for for having me today. I'm very excited to be chatting about what's what's a rising problem for Canadians. Um, so we like to think of ourselves as a triple win, where um, people have a great opportunity to save money on fresh deals of food that's perfectly healthy to consume. Um, we are also impacting the environment, decreasing the environmental impact of food waste. As Lori mentioned, the the methane gas that's created from food waste when it ends up in a landfill is is something that we're looking to. Um, help decrease over time as we save more deals and rescue more food. And then we're also helping the grocers find a way to get the food into homes versus having to dispose of it, which which doesn't feel good for anyone. Um, and that's, that's how we're really trying to tackle this through um, consumers being able to purchase items at home and then go and pick them up directly at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's it's interesting that uh, uh, can you at this point sort of see what you're buying? I remember I started to use some and it was kind of a surprise. You would sign up for a surprise basket. Yeah, yeah. Everyone tackles it differently. Um, and on the, the Flash Food app in particular, we like to show visibility to our shoppers of what they're getting. So whether it's a live picture of the item that you're actually going to be picking up that day, or if it's more of a stock image from the e-commerce site, um, you're always going to have an image of the item. So if you're going to go pick up a steak, there will be an image of a steak. You would know that's the particular steak you're getting and what price point it's at. Or one of our other most popular items is our produce boxes, which are a mixed box of different produce items, sometimes just fruit, sometimes veggies, sometimes a mix of both that you can feed your family with. And we actually have the store teams take photos of those items so that you can choose the one that might have oranges because maybe your child at home really loves oranges or the one with apples if that's your preference instead. Hmm. Uh, Rose, uh, what have you found among your clients? Are, are they getting more into using these apps or finding other ways to stop food waste? Yeah, they're starting for sure. Um, I would say, you know, anything from, um, seniors right down to the younger people. I know my, my daughters, one of my daughters uses it and she loves it. She can go to exclusive stores like Pusateri's and end up with, um, you know, a meal, a soup and a salad for $10, which she would normally never go in and do. And then it also is encouraging people to eat more fruits and vegetables. So what if something is a little bruised? You know, you can peel away the skin and still enjoy it. So I think it's ultimately incredible for um, awareness of, of better eating. And, you know, I asked myself at one point, why wouldn't people just go into the store and look for the discounts, right? Well, often you don't find where they are. Like I know bananas and certain fruits at some supermarkets are sort of stashed away. You don't see it. This way, you can go on every day, every other day, just see what's what's going on. And for instance, if I know I'm making a Sunday night dinner, it's really know that I, nice that I can get a flank steak for half price. That's huge to no matter, I think, no matter what budget you're, you're following. Yeah. And sometimes uh, the, the uh, 50% off uh, a shelf in a grocery store, frankly, it, it doesn't really look that appetizing. Right. I, it's, I guess, a, a merchandising issue. I want to take a couple of calls. Uh, we've got Tony in Vaughn. And hi, Tony. Oh, hi. Good day. Thank you for taking my call. And uh, you're in uh, Banquet Central, so uh, tell me why you're calling. Yeah, so, um, you know, never in the history of Banquet Hall services, and and we're we're going back 50, 75 years, have people requested to be paid with leftover food from the event as opposed to being paid for that evening. For example, there will be a tray of lasagna, that normally would sell for about $120 if you go buy, you know, retail uh, or, you know, some uh, a bunch of um, veal cutlets or vegetables. And so rather than p- servers being paid $125 for the night, um, they're taking home over $300 worth of, of leftover food from the event. Are you, and, just you know, a minute, just a minute. Are you saying this is happening? Oh, yeah, it's been happening for over a year and a half. 
And my dad, my grandfather, never in the history of banquet services have they seen workers asking to be paid with food as opposed to money. Uh, and you're you're saying there are the, I've I've seen uh, events where really there's way too much food. Uh, and is that what's what happens at at these events as far as you can see? Absolutely. Typically, if you know if it's a wedding or a, a, a business Christmas get together, um, they will typically produce twenty five to thirty percent more food to make sure that the uh, guests are satisfied. Um, but normally, you know, with a five, six, seven course meal, um, not only is there a great deal left of food in, in, in the kitchen, but a lot of food is being left on people's plates, uh, which is unfortunate. But in the past, the workers would take home the food. Um, but because the food is so expensive, like veal is, is the most expensive meat aside from filet mignon to purchase. Um, and so the banquet is actually benefiting because you know, uh, they're, they're providing the leftover food, which is costing at a premium, and they're not paying workers $125 for the evening. So, like I said, never in the history of banquet services in over 75 years have workers requested to be paid in food as opposed to money. Okay, thanks, Tony, for that. That's uh, kind of interesting. And uh, Lori Nickel, I remember back when, I hate to date myself, when Second Harvest was just starting out. And that was what they did at the beginning was rescue leftovers from events. I mean, uh, how big a, a problem or an opportunity is that? It, there's definitely an opportunity there. Um, and it's true. At the beginning of Second Harvest, it was uh, restaurants and some retail. And so we created the Second Harvest Food Rescue app just for that purpose. So those smaller kind of yields of food could get directly to a charity or nonprofit in that neighborhood. And there is there is a lot of surplus excess food in, in banquet halls, in restaurants and retail, uh, less than retail than most people think, to be fair. Um, that is absolutely needing a home. Uh, at a charity or, or community center close to it. So that has spiked. And what we're watching is like national organizations now using the app, like Starbucks or A&W, or there's a whole bunch of them that are using the app so that, you know, we don't have to get the food here at Second Harvest at our warehouse. It can go directly to wherever it is. So if you're in Vancouver Island, it's going to a charity on Vancouver Island. Rose, you're a caterer, um, and uh, do people order too much? I, I have to say, I, I, I went to a wonderful wedding on New Year's Eve, mm-hmm. and uh, you, a member of the family actually said, oh, there will be a couple of oysters before dinner. There was a, a huge array of appetizers sort of served on trays, and literally, I felt horrible, because by the time my dinner arrived, I couldn't eat. Right, right. I mean, you know, as a caterer, I know that. Um, more so than not, we want to give more because people, you know, they start out being a little stingier. Well, I don't want to pay that much, but we look really bad if there's not enough food. So we'll always bring at least 10 to 15% more food to an event, even though what the person's ordered. And of course, we, you know, if we have to go to, into it, we do. We try to convince our clients that they need to, you know, up the ante. But we do, and we bring it back. Now, what, what we would normally do is our staff would end up taking it home, um, because it, once it's been out, we couldn't donate it to Second Harvest, of course, or, or give it to anyone. So um, our staff would tend to take it home, so we wouldn't have that much waste. But we always have to produce more than what we need in every case. Okay, let's take a call from Diane in Woodstock. Hi, Diane. Good morning, Vivi. Um, my husband and I are seniors, and um, as of five years ago, I uh, retired But before that, I was a daycare provider. I wouldn't even dream of running a daycare in my home with children at the price of food right now. Mm -hmm. Now, as a shopper, I used to go to the store, and I would buy lots of fruits and vegetables. Everything looked good. By the time you got it home, put it in your fridge, waited a couple of days to cook it, it was spoiled. So you spend all that money, and you have no idea how long it's been on the shelf before you buy it. Because when you buy fresh broccoli and and cauliflower, there's no best before date on it. You bring it home. I have all the best containers that you can buy to preserve them, 
and yet they still rot before you cook them. Mm-hmm. So what I have done, uh, because we're on a fixed income as seniors, I've changed the way I shop. We do a menu planning before I go to the store. I only buy what we're going to eat that particular week. So it's unfortunate that you look at uh, at the fruits and vegetables, they look good, but you have no idea how long they're going to last in your fridge. Well, I think uh, part of that also depends on your fridge and um, also on how they're stored. I mean, it, it, it's kind of interesting. I find that in grocery stores, they they use a lot of water on stuff, and a lot of them have these biodegradable bags that uh, biodegrade your food. <laughs> Nobody well, knows. still as a senior on a, on a fixed income, you can't afford to have things spoil. Absolutely, absolutely. And throwing things out. Now, my husband and I, we do have a compost pail, that um, we collect, you know, things that are, you know, that you can compost. But we also have a depot in Woodstock where we can take it, which is great for us. But for people living in bigger cities, they don't have that luxury like we do. Okay, thank you, Diane. Uh, uh, Brody, uh, is there a profile to the people who have uh, picked up on your app and perhaps other apps? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm happy to answer this one. We have a variety of different demographics of shoppers. And, and actually, seniors who are on a fixed income are one of our core demographics. Um, and I'm, I'm really happy to hear that um, you're planning your meals before you're going to the store. Because a lot of flash food shoppers will purchase something on flash food that they're going to have for dinner that night. So it's how they'll meal plan for that evening. And then they'll go to the store purchase that item. Maybe they need a couple of other items from the store to round out their meal. They'll purchase those while they're there and they'll go home and they'll consume it that night. Um, so seniors have been a large demographic of ours, mainly because of the fact that you are on a fixed income and you want to stretch your dollar as far as possible. And um, you have perfectly good food here for a, a better discount or a better price than it is in store. Hmm. Uh, and uh I want to talk a bit about the impact of the pandemic, because I know that a lot of people who may have uh, shopped, you know, more than once a week or shopped multiple times, uh, you know, during the pandemic, people wanted to cut back on that. And I know that that was bad for some food apps that started up around that time. Uh, Lori Nickel, uh, what was the impact of the pandemic? And uh, are we recovering from all of that? Ooh, well, I can speak about the impact of uh, the pandemic on food security, and uh, there were some interventions put in place to ensure people could access food, and and there was a big spike of food loss and waste when all the restaurants closed, so there was some good uh, interventions that were put in place for that. But since the pandemic, I mean, we're still in it, but the interventions are gone, and what we're seeing with food insecurity, and we just launched a new report today, is that um, it spiked 134% last year, and it looks like it's going to be another 60% next year. And again, like, thank you for doing this program, because the truth is we have more than enough food to feed everybody, so we have to make these connections, and I love any kind of app that is supporting the reduction of waste and getting food to uh, people at a, a much uh, less expensive cost uh, because we're not out of the woods. Food inflation is just getting worse and worse. It's higher than it's ever been, well, since the 70s. And it's almost becoming unmanageable to pay your rent and feed your kids in, in Toronto and in this country. Hmm. Also, if I can add to that, eating healthy is, is a huge concern oh, yeah. today. Because, I mean, yeah. you know, I saw the other day a cauliflower going for 8 $9. Oh, my goodness. And it had bruises on it. And I'm saying... Who's going to spend that kind of money when mm-hmm. three or four people can finish that? So my concern is that people are going to package, process, ultra-processed foods that don't have the nutrients just because it's cheaper. And and uh, remember what happened to lettuce. I think lettuce is oh still God. really high after whatever yep. it was that caused well, that. And, and we were also you know, taking things off the menu because of that, Libby. So people weren't getting what they wanted because we didn't want to tell them what we'd have to start charging for salads. Yeah, well, there are other things you can put in salads, people. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. Uh, I want to get back to this new report. What are your other findings there? 
Um, basically, it was a really brief report, to be honest, and it was really to understand, you know, what's the situation going to look like in 2023. And so... Uh, 1,300 organizations that did a voluntary survey and, and just the 1,300 organizations um, had a default of $94 million that they're going to need to make up for next year. So if you extrapolate that number across the whole charitable sector of 61,000 food programs or uh, agencies that are supporting people with food, we're looking at a $4 billion deficit in food. And these are like, you know, there's no middle class anymore. Uh, so these are people that have incomes. These are people that are working. This isn't what typically people think of when they think food insecurity. These are your neighbors. These are your friends. So it is looking really um, doom and gloom, quite frankly, uh, in the next coming year. And food inflation is, and to Rose's point, like healthy food is impossible. If you're living on a fixed income or you're low income, how are you accessing good, healthy food? I mean... It's just more difficult than ever. Okay. I I also wanted to ask, that's a staggering number, 61,000 food charities. So Mm -hmm. is uh, do we need 61,000 food charities? Well, we have them. So, yes, we do. Do we want them? Absolutely not. So what this looks like really is they're just, you know, church basements or uh, faith-based institutions or community centers or senior centers or anywhere that people are congregating, they're accessing food or mental health um, supports. And so they're not really designed just for food, but what's happened is they're designed for other programming, but they need food because the people that are accessing them need the food. And so they're, it's great if we can get them the free food because then they can spend that money that they would spend on food on the supports they need, like paying for a social worker or getting a van so they can take trips or equipment or whatever it is. Um, But more and more programs are popping up and it's not because anybody wants them. It's because there's a need and it's, it's Canadians are needing food and they just can't come up with it and pay their fixed amounts. Hmm. Uh, Rose, have you seen clients embracing uh, stopping food waste at a at a personal level, kind of as a coming up as a New Year's resolution or anything I, like that? You know, I'm not seeing enough of it of certain ages, especially I'd say of 45 plus. Um, I see the younger generation. I know my children who are all in their 20s and 30s. They um, are much more aware of it because of the environment. So I think, you know, we, we need even more PR around these apps. I mean, you know, a lot of people have not heard of them yet, and I know they've just come out. But I think making people more aware of what these apps can do will get more people online because, look, at everyone lives on their phones. But I think we need to see more more um, promotion on this because I, I was reading there was just like a couple stores saying some days maybe they'll pull in $100. That's not enough. You know, we want to be making that into the thousands that people are spending. So I think we still have a ways to go, um, um, especially, you know, flash flood. How else can we get the message out there to people? Uh, Brody, did you want to jump in there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we we are always trying to find more shoppers who are engaged, whether it's saving money or helping save the planet, because we really do have the demographics that go after both. Um, and to date, we have over two and a half million people who have downloaded and used Flash Food, right. but that's just a small percentage of Canadians, right? right? That's a um, we, right? We want we want to have more Canadians who've downloaded the app, mm-hmm. who are thinking about their meal today, and and how can they save money on that, and how can they also save the planet at the same time. So we're continuing to to push out the word through different forms of marketing, um, through some great PR. And, and again, thanks for having us today. This is a great opportunity to spread the word. Um, but we want more Canadians to be able to save money on food with rising inflation and also help save the planet at the same time. Okay. And there there are other food apps like Too Good To Go. And in your grocery store, you will find 50% off Enjoy Tonight if you are shopping in person there. Um, I, just one thing strikes me before we wrap things up that on the one hand, you know, when you look at the advice for stopping food waste uh, at a family level, it's cook in batches, plan your meals, you know, freeze. But on the other hand, we have the rise of all these kind of food delivery services saying we will only send you the portion you need to eat so you won't waste. Right. And those things seem to be 
in conflict. And I think those, uh, I've never used those kinds of, uh, services, but I think they're also kind of expensive, Rose. Yeah, they are, Libby. They are. As you know, in, in the end, you'll get all these deals where they'll, they'll throw you 10 or 15 meals for free and then, you know, hopefully hook you in. And they end up being 13, 14, even more dollars a person. Mm-hmm. So for people that are on a real budget, like the seniors we just spoke to, that's just too much money every single day for one meal. Yeah, and and uh, but but is the whole sort of concept the opposite? I know you were mentioning people in their forties, and that's people, I guess, that might be at the height of busyness with careers right. and kids right. and all of that. Yeah. I think I think there's a different core demographic for 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 the different things as well, right? Um, some of those products are trying to, to hit on convenience and also trying to help you reduce your food waste impact at your home, although there, there's another environmental cost to getting you that food, et cetera. Um, at least there's not as much stuff going rotten in the bottom of your fridge, which a lot of people have problems with if they're not meal planning appropriately and they, they just tend to overpurchase. Um, so I think it's focusing on a different demographic and helping us fight food waste in a different way, whereas apps like Flash Food are really for a shopper who you know, is willing to make the drive to the store to, to get a deal, um, who understands that that food is still good, even if it has a bit of a nick in it or a bit of a scratch. Um, but I, I do hear what you're saying, absolutely, that in some ways they're conflicting, um, and we need people to understand the impacts of both and, and what the best use for both of those types of um, products and technology is. Okay, I'm going to take a very quick call from Hal in Kitchener. Hi, Hal. Yeah, I'll try to make it very quick. I have a relative that works for a, a producer of veggies in a bag or, or salads and that stuff. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, apparently, the company seems to think that they can package it the way they do it, and it expires before the expire date. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've had those. That way. So they purposely put it in bags soaking wet, like vegetables, which you don't want to do. And then seal the bag. Uh, yeah, that is and one of my pet peeves. Way before the due date. You in have fact, to. When be- I buy one, and I buy them very infrequently anymore, but when I buy one, the darn thing is, you know, almost rotten when you open the bag. Well, it it depends. There, the, some of them are better than others, but uh, I always pay close attention to whether they're they're wet or they're dry, and if they're wet, they're they're going to go off. Similar. Okay, thanks for that, Hal. Okay, I'm looking at the clock. Um, people, Free For All Friday is coming up, but let's go around our virtual table and see what our panelists want to leave us with, starting with Brody. Yeah, I, I think I want to leave Canadians today with, um, you know, be uncomfortable or be comfortable with buying foods that are, are less than perfect. You know, there's all kinds of different solutions out there, and flash food is just a part of this, this massive problem that we're trying to solve. But be okay with something that might expire tonight. It's still good. Go ahead, cook it, throw it on the grill. You know, if your apple has a little bit of a nick out of it or if it doesn't look perfect, um, like Rose said earlier, peel it and figure something else out to cook with it. We have to solve this problem together, and we're happy to be a part of that solution. But we really need to count on Canadians as a whole to um, put their hand in and really make a difference. Lori? Um, well, you know, inflation is at all time high. I would say shop less, just shop less, buy less, and you're going to waste less. And if you are a food industry or business, please, if you have surplus food and you do connect with second harvest and get on the second harvest app and donate it to a family that needs it. Okay. Rose Reisman, last 20 seconds to you. Last 20, you've got to get on these apps because just getting on them in the last few days, I'm shocked at what you can get. And I think people will be stunned to know that they can get really good quality meat and cheeses for such a discount price that you you wouldn't find in the stores or cutting coupons or running to 10 stores. Waste your time. So I beg people to look at any one of these apps to try it out. And uh, we were talking to the VP of Flash Food, but there's also two good to go. Are there any others that you use, Rose? Uh, there was one other, oh my goodness, I can't remember the name, but Too Good to Go also deals with bakers, butchers, restaurants. So don't think it's only a supermarket. So that's a really great thing. Restaurants have a lot of stuff, you know, at the end of the night or, you know, in the daytime when the you know, party's been canceled. I mean, Tim Hortons, Longo's, Metro, there's so many places that you can go to on these apps. 
Okay. On that note, we wrap things up. Thanks so much, Brody Slacer, Rose Reisman, and Lori Nickel. Bye-bye. Thanks, Libby. Take care. Bye-bye, everybody. Okay, we're taking a break. And when we come back, okay, we've been talking about the high cost of food and inflation. Well, it seems to be hitting long-term care homes in a way that looks to be very disproportionate. We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Speaking of food inflation, this comment from Mayor John Tory when he was explaining the proposed record tax hikes really struck me. Uh, Our long-term care residences, of which we own 10, uh, will face a $3 million increase to their food bill to care for the seniors that we have in our care. Um, And that's a 31% increase. And this just goes on and on in terms of examples we face as a city government in trying to deal with the challenges of serving people. Okay, if this is the case at the city's 10 homes, it must be the same at all or most of the other long-term care facilities. And in the past, we've seen evidence of poor quality of food, notably highlighted in the Auditor General's report in 2017. So uh, my first question is, yes, food inflation is very high at 11.4%, but how does that translate to an increase of more Then 30%. And if you have questions, let me give you the numbers. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now we bring in Lisa Levin, the CEO of Advantage Ontario, and Councillor Gary Crawford, Ward 20 Scarborough Southwest, and Chair of the Budget Committee. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi. Hi, how are you? Fine. Uh, Hi, Libby. Hi, Lisa. So, uh, Gary Crawford, you're the head of the Budget Committee. You know, when you saw that number, uh, did it pop out at you? How does 11.4% inflation translate to 30% increase? Well, so did it pop out? Yes, I think it popped out, plus a number of uh, different kind of increases that happened. Let me give a bit of context. So when we're looking at the challenges that we're facing um, with this particular budget, there are a number of different, like everyone else, we are we are fighting inflation, we're in uh, high interest rates, supply chain stuff. There were a couple of things that popped out for me. One was that when you're looking at simple things like gas, um, and this is just to supply all of our buses, all of our fleet, uh, we, we are paying $46 million more. Um, you know, a year just because of the, the cost of, of gas. When you're looking at long-term care homes, and, and I believe the, the number may have, and I'd have to correct this, but when I heard the uh, mayor mention that, not only includes long-term care homes, but I believe our shelters. Uh, and the number was $3 million more um, to provide, you know, food for, for our long-term care homes and shelters. And then the percentage was was quite high. Um, but it, what it's does is indicated to to people and residents that you know our costs have been going up just like your costs, and we're trying to figure out ways to manage it. But again, how does eleven point four percent increase in uh, costs? And I'm assuming that you buy bulk and all of that. Uh, how does that become thirty uh, percent? Is it is it transportation? I mean, I would imagine that when you buy food for long term care home, it's not the city that's transporting it. Yeah, no, I mean, that that number does seem high. And uh, again, when we're looking at long-term care homes, when you're looking at our our shelters that uh, do provide food, um, I don't know the specific breakdowns of the numbers other than the gross amount, of course, that was the $3 million more um, than we would have been doing back in in 2022. Um, It it doesn't seem correct the way you're uh, presenting it to me. That is something I I would probably have to look at a little bit further. Okay, please please do. I will. Lisa Levin, um, what have you seen in terms of increased food costs for long-term care homes in your organization? Well, Libby, we have seen, as you've mentioned, an increase in food costs in in everything from, well, of course, there's the lettuce situation uh, all the way to meat um, and things like oil has gone up, like edible oils, 26%, breakfast cereal, 14%, um, Milk, 11%. We're all seeing it in the grocery store, and it's happening in the long-term care homes as well. And I certainly can't comment on Toronto's specific numbers, um, but what I can tell you is that people's um, requirements for food are are different than before. 
So, for example, Toronto has a highly diverse um, population and people have different kinds of diets um, that the city might uh, be trying to accommodate uh, as well. There's also not just cultural diets, but, you know, some people are now vegan, some people are vegetarian, some people are keto. And so when you go into long-term care, does that have to end? Uh, certainly you wouldn't want that to happen. Uh, and I know the city has also done some really transformational work um, in making the homes more person-centered. And perhaps this is going along with that piece as well. Uh, but again, uh, what have you heard from your members in, in terms of their increased costs for food coming up? Our members are saying that the, the, the food prices are increasing dramatically and um, they want us to advocate to government to increase. So um, actually, in last year's budget, the government actually increased funding for food by um, a significant amount of money, 15% which is really unprecedented. And we thought, wow, this is great. And then the food prices skyrocketed. So it effectively kind of canceled it out. Um, and there was a couple of years where the ministry didn't increase food funding. And, you know, there was the regular increases. So I think there's a combination of the inflationary pressures and also just the changing needs in long-term care that uh, homes are trying to keep up with. And it's, it's really tough. And uh, do you have have any of them spoken to you about uh, an increase in that particular line item of as high mm-hmm. as thirty um, percent? No, but you know everyone has different situ- circumstances and, and situations. So, and it sounds like this also included shelters. So, I certainly can't comment on that um, at all. Uh, and does it, I know you represent mostly not-for-profit homes, but, you know, uh, the, the first thing that I remembered when I saw this is that, gosh, I'm remembering that devastating Auditor General report uh, that spoke about, I mean, you know, we've, we've said a lot of food that has best before dates is just fine, but, you know, uh, eggs out of date three months are, are not fine. Uh, mm-hmm. does, does it worry you in terms of the quality of the food that residents might get? Well, I think if prices are increasing for food, which they are, and if the government isn't able to give us um, increase in the next provincial budget, um, for at least 5% more for food, then the quality of food in the homes will deteriorate, which nobody wants, unless the homes can find money from elsewhere. And that's getting harder and harder to do. But, you know, a lot of homes, you know, can fundraise or, or get grants and things like that. But things are really tight now. And so unless we get more money um, from the province, and, and I hate asking for, for more money because they actually gave us $1.8 billion in additional funding last year, um, just for all the different things. But, and, and they did increase funding for food 15%, but we're going to keep needing it to increase by at least 5% next year. Hmm. Uh, or this year, like this, the next fiscal year starting in April. Right. So on top of the 15%, which probably didn't cover the whole uh, 11.4% on average. Uh, mm-hmm. Gary Crawford, uh, do you see this, uh, you know, um, you know, again, it looks staggering. I mean, $3 million in the context of Toronto's budget is frankly not that much. But um, again, I mean, did you have any expectation that this would happen? Well, again, expectation, um, when you're looking at inflation, yes, we did have expectation that costs would be going up. And, and, um, did it surprise me that food costs were going up? No, it didn't. Uh, you've given me, uh, excuse the pun, but food for thought to look at the 30%. So we're going to have to go back and look at that to make sure that that number is correct. But when you're looking at those, you know, the pressures, um, you know, of, of maintaining long-term care homes, um, and we have 10 that have 2,600 residents, um, the costs go up, you know, and, and they have been going up very dramatically. We we do get support from the other uh, from provincial government, but th- those are costs that you know are real costs that I think not only are we impacted in the long term care homes, but all across the city, all, all other services as mentioned before. Um, when you look at the cost of gas, when you look at the cost of things that everybody else is challenged in trying to afford, we also look at that. And I think that was the context of 
when the mayor and I started discussing these kind of increases, and and they're they're alarming, you know. And it says we're looking at the challenge of balancing a a large budget, the sixteen billion dollar budget. It are those it's those smaller line items that they do add up and they accumulate over time, and they are you know difficult to manage at times. But that's part of the process of uh, budgeting a very large budget that we are doing. Mm-hmm. I mean the the other worrying. I mean the city's long-term care homes uh, are pretty good or considered to be really among the best ones that we have. So, uh, no, absolutely. I mean, we, we have, um, so as I said, we have 10 long-term care homes. Uh, to, just to let you know, so the budget for our long-term care homes, along with senior services, which are combined in, in our budget line, uh, we've had increased uh, that budget by 25%. Now, some of that, of course, comes from the provincial government, but we've also made commitments ourselves when you're looking at sort of the the direct care model funding, like the the emotion care funding, we are putting in incredible investments over the next number of years to do that. But those are an example of one of those frontline services that we feel, uh, the mayor and I, of course, at this point has to get the council of of the priorities that the city has is ensuring that our long term care homes not only are well maintained, but we uh, they will be examples of where long term care homes can potentially go, uh, you know, province wide, and where we're using that example and that investment. Frankly, and it'll be a sizable investment over time to look at the importance of long-term care homes for our residents in the city. Lisa, Libby, I, I have something I can add to uh, to those comments as well that I just thought of. Go ahead, um, and that is that some of the things that homes like uh, Toronto are doing is they're trying to help people be able to eat at the times they wish to eat, and not have everyone up at breakfast at a certain time and lunch at the same time because people want to eat at different times. So some homes have invested in equipment to be able to bring hot food to people in their rooms or just have it available and heat it up. So part of the emotional models of care that Toronto's doing in their homes probably has an increase in their food budget and their equipment budget for food because food is, is central to life and, and wellness and happiness. Um, the other thing is, is that food prices have gone up higher than other kinds of um, prices. So, you know, I'm looking at so many food items have been increased by over 14% up to 26%. Yeah, the the other question I have, and this this is a tough question. I mean, one of the things that is going around is a question for a lot of people. Uh, are Is there greedflation, so-called, are suppliers or some suppliers taking advantage of the situation? And again, you know, uh, this is... Uh, a, you know, a, a facility that is, at least to some degree, publicly funded. And, you know, when I look at that number that Gary is going to be looking into, 30%, I'm thinking, you know, is it possible that um, there there is some of that involved? I mean, are you, Lisa, are your members sort of sharpening their pencils with their suppliers? Well, certainly they're, you know, they're commenting and, and trying to push back, but it, it's hard if you're a small independent home. Um, to have an Im- impact on that. Um, and it's, you know, I really don't know what's happening. I've seen the headlines about certain grocery stores increasing prices. Um, I just know our members are generally unhappy that prices have gone up significantly with food and other items, um, but they are expecting it given what's happening in the rest of Ontario and Canada. Okay. Um, going to wrap things up now. Gary, uh, what would you like to leave us with? Um, really what I want to leave you, your listeners with, again, when we're looking at the context uh, of our budget, we are beginning, we have begun that process. Um, we're looking at the, you know, we're trying to, to manage the, the fiscal challenges that I think everybody does. We're looking at, you know, trying to maintain frontline services. Long-term care homes would be a good example. We are putting the investments where we feel are necessary in challenging times because um, we, we need to continue investing that, whether it's that community safety. Um, and, you know, the, the numbers are, as, as, as you've mentioned, can be stark at times, but um, you look at this dollar at a time. Uh, you've given me a bit of uh, information to to look at. Uh, and again, this is part of the process. This is part of this public process we have with our budget to really look at and start diving deep into all the concerns that, that we have. And this is just one example of one that I'll be bringing back myself um, to staff in the next couple of days to, to get a better sense of uh, how food impacts our long-term care homes. Great. And Lisa, last 15 seconds to you. I think food is a really important thing. So if you're going to increase anything, let it be food. 
Uh, and we hope the provincial government can increase the, the budget for food. Okay. Amen to that. Thank you very much, Lisa Levin and Gary Crawford. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Libby. Okay. Uh, we're taking another break. And, you know, uh, since we've been talking about New Year's resolutions, uh, we've got to mention exercise. And uh, it's good for more than just keeping your bod in shape when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Since we've been talking about New Year's resolutions, we've got to mention exercise. And in addition to all the other benefits we know about, exercise can lift your mood and help you get over the winter blues. But here's something ironic. A lot of people use the really cold weather as an excuse for not exercising. So what do you think about that? Now I'm joined by Lee Vanderloo, an exercise scientist with Participation. Hi, Lee. Hi, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So that seems like uh, two things that don't really add up. Yeah, absolutely. It is an interesting concept in that, uh, you know, the one thing that can help really boost moods and kind of actually even warm us up by elevating our body temperature is the one thing that many of us don't want to do during this time. Um, But it's not surprising um, as, you know, when it comes to physical activity, we definitely see a seasonality effect. Um, But definitely during this time when, you know, people's moods tend to be a little bit lower sometime, we're not getting the same sunlight, it's colder, so we just want to hibernate. Um, and taking some time, even 15 minutes a day to get outdoors and move your body or even indoors, depending on where you're located, um, is definitely a great way to help boost moods, combat stress, and really ensure that you're putting, um, you know, your best foot forward when it comes to um, your overall health and well-being. Well, that's right. You mentioned outdoors. A lot of people like outdoors, but uh, there's a lot of exercise you can do indoors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, depending on where you're located, your preference and activity, um, or especially if you're an older adult um, and you're worried about potentially trips and falls because of slippery surfaces, um, you know, icy roads or the slush, um, you know, you definitely can take the activity indoors. And it really doesn't matter what you do as long as you're moving your body, breaking up period, extended periods of sedentary time, um, and that it's something you enjoy and actually look forward to, um, any little bit of uh, movement counts. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, um, what is any kind of specific correlation between exercise and uh, what some people call the, the winter blues, but can actually be more serious than that? Absolutely. So, you know, a large percentage of people in Canada do report their mood um, being a little bit lower, feeling a little bit more, um, you know, stressed or overwhelmed during the winter months. Um, You know, a a number of reasons are for that. One, we're seeing less um, sunlight, so it's just darker for extended periods of time. Some of us are leaving for work and coming home from work or school and it's dark. Uh, So we're not really getting a lot of, um, you know, light. Um, it's colder, so we want to be inside. Some of the activities that we gravitate towards um, might be a little bit more sedentary in nature. Um, and then, of course, some of us are just feeling a little bit more overwhelmed, you know, not feeling like there's a lot to look forward to, especially, you know, the holidays just finished and all the festivities. Um, and so those are some of the reasons um, that we typically tend to see some lower moods during this time. But the great thing with physical activity is that it really doesn't take a lot for us to... Um, for us to benefit, particularly from a mental health or just overall brain health perspective. And that's what's really great because when we want to see changes from more of a physical perspective, so say improving our heart health, um, that'll definitely come, but usually not until we've engaged in physical activity over a, you know, a number of couple of days, weeks, and months. Uh, but when it comes to overall brain health and particularly mental health, so if we're thinking of symptoms of depression and anxiety, just a single bout of physical activity is going to help us feel um, a little bit less stressed, a little bit less anxious, um, and just feel more positive moods overall. And do you have any particular type of of exercise that uh, that you're recommending? 
Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, the kind of go-to that I like to stick with is, you know, something's better than nothing and more is always better. There is really no such thing as bad movement. I think the biggest key here is just to choose an activity that you genuinely enjoy and look forward to because when it comes to a behavior like physical activity, um, if you don't enjoy it, the likelihood of you coming back to it or repeating it or wanting to do it more than one time is really unlikely. And we want people to keep... um, you know, keep coming back to this particular movement. So it can be anything from, you know, walking and wheeling, taking the family pet out. Um, It can be yoga, whether it's seated or not, any type of sport-related activity. If you like a group fitness class, even dancing, um, whether it's structured or unstructured, um, and even, you know, doing housework, snow shoveling, all of those different things, you know, do require movement. And the great thing about them is that they do also work at breaking up extended periods of sedentary time. So, you're kind of getting two birds with one stone, not only getting more active, but also decreasing your sedentary time. Um, and, you know, the activity can be done solo if you prefer to do it that way. Um, or if you can make it social, that's going to give you even that extra added boost um, from a mental health perspective. And same with when, if you can take that activity outdoors as well. What we've seen until now is the recommendation is that uh, really you need at least 150 minutes a week, which is more than 15 minutes a day. Uh, So are you telling people not to worry about that? No, no. I think, you know, when, you know, the ultimate goal is to aim for 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per week. So if we break that down per day, we're looking at about... Sorry. Uh, No, that's okay. Um, So if we're looking at it per week uh, or per day, um, that's about, you know, 21, 22 minutes. But where that 15 minutes comes into play is that it's just that, you know, after some additional research, it just goes to show that you really don't need to do as much as we originally thought to start benefiting from physical activity. The more we do, the better. And of course, aiming for that 150 per week of that moderate to vigorous, we're going to get even better health benefits across all various domains. Um, But I think, you know, the really important take-home message here is just to help people realize that you can break it into smaller, um, more manageable chunks. It doesn't have to be an hour at a time. You can do, you know, two 10-minute periods or maybe one 15-minute period one day and 30 minutes another day. Um, it really just depends on what works for you and um, when you can foreseeably see yourself engaging in this movement consistently uh, from day to day, week to week, month to month. Okay. Lee Vanderloo, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.